Welcome to Life Source Church. Subscribe to our podcast on iTunes or SoundCloud. Today you're going to hear a message from Pastor Walt that we hope encourages you. So when I received Christ in uh, 1975, this, the spring of 1975, I was attending the University of Missouri in Kansas City, a pretty good sized school, I think about 10,000 students at the time, and um, I, I was studying, my major was administration of justice. And uh, as I look back now, I think that must have been a parenting class, right? <laughs> no, administration of justice, it was pre-police, pre-law, pre-corrections, anything in that, that field. Uh, but I had come to Christ uh, during my um, freshman year. And of course, God goes to work in our lives when we come to Christ, doesn't he? This is all so new. I mean, I had religious upbringing, but you know, now you're trying to figure out what did I believe that was right, what, what I wasn't right, and all that. But I had many times on in that campus, we had um, 7.30 in the morning classes, and they were always like math classes. I don't know why. But I, I, I remember it, sometimes mornings like this, Cole, but go to that early class and get through it. And then I had an hour, two hours off sometimes, and I would go down to the cafeteria and sit in the cafeteria and you could see out the windows there that I get a cup of coffee and they made these amazing cinnamon sugar donuts. Not that that's really important, but somehow I remember it, okay? But I sat there as a new believer with my Bible and I opened the Bible and read it, and God was working and teaching me and helping me to understand his word. I probably learned things back then at that time that you've heard from me, that, that I learned then. And so uh, it was an amazing time. Now, that was the University of Missouri, can't see. I graduated there, got married, worked at General Mills for a year, and then the Lord had just made it real clear that he wanted me to go in the ministry, and so my wife and I moved from Kansas City down to Springfield, Missouri and, and enrolled in Bible college and be, began studying. Now, I discovered when I went to Bible college, there's a whole list of classes you have to take, right? And I had a degree, a bachelor's degree from the University of Missouri, 120 credit hours, and they transferred 17 of those hours into my new <laughs> degree because it's all different kinds of classes, right? It's all different, so you had to study it. But, um, but I discovered, you know, as I was working on this, it didn't take very long to understand that there was another class that you had to take that wasn't on the list. It was an informal class, an unofficial class, but really you needed to do this if you wanted to be prepared for the ministry. At least that's the way it kind of came across to me. And that class was called Coffee Shop. Uh-huh. <laughs> Well, what it was is this is where all us young students studying theology, we went to the coffee shop and we sat down and had our discussions. We talked about what we were learning and we debated because, you know, the professor would say, well, some people think this, some people think that, and then we would have our debates back and forth. And so there's something about donuts and, you know, debates. I like that. And so... um, but it, the main thing that we were debating, I mean, sometimes it was practice and stuff, but more often than not, it was theology, you know, and, and discussing it, and all, of course, the bulk of what we agreed on, and the parts that we, weren't, we disagreed on or we were trying to figure out. And so these theology discussions, and, and I say you need to take it because even though 
It wasn't like, you know, someone instructing you. I really learned a lot in that setting. I learned a lot about theology. And some of, you know, things that I already knew and believed were just really, you know, driven down deeper in those discussions. And then some of them, you know, were new ideas that, that I grabbed. Um, and so it was just very, very helpful studying theology. Now, one of the areas of theology is called Christology. It's about Christ. It's the doctrine of Christ. What do we believe about Christ? And so Christology... What I want to do today is take a look at the Christmas story and say, what do we learn about the Son of God? What do we learn about Him from the Christmas story? Things that are directly connected to it, and that's why I'm calling it Christmasology, that great creative name. It's, I was talking with Hung and Sheik. You guys know what that means? Right? Um, so we're going to do that, and we're going to take a look today. By the way, theology is, like I said, it's just really, really important. And the reason it's important is because theology is what you, we all have our theology, and, and most of it probably matches, hopefully, most of it. But what we believe about God affects everything else in our lives. Everything. Because what you believe about God affects even, you know, why are we here? What's the point? How did we get here? What's the purpose? What are we supposed to be doing in our lives? How do we respond? All of that can be traced back to theology. And, um, you know, I thought about putting out earlier this week on Facebook saying, hey, we're going to look at the theology of Christmas. And I thought, oh, no, no, people will find other things to do. Because sometimes you think it's theology or whatever. But is it? no, I'm just telling you, theology is very simply what we believe about God and, the, you know, things related to that. Um, and it really, really matters. Um, now, for some people like me, we just enjoy it. And for the rest of the normal people, it still matters. Okay? Uh, all right. So we're going to look today at the, the Son of God uh, before Christmas. We're going to look at the Son of God at Christmas and then the Son of God after Christmas. So let's take our Bibles and turn to the Gospel of John. John chapter 1. And if you need a Bible, there's one under the chairs there in front of you. We encourage you to follow along. We'll give you page numbers when you need it. Page 1220. John chapter 1. It says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And if we jump down to verse 14, we see in the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And so this is, we are talking about the son of God here, Jesus Christ, the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay. So that is who the word is a reference to, but it's, it's kind of strange for us. I think here in our culture today, in the beginning was the word. What are we, what are we talking about here? Well, to the Greek culture the, and their philosophy and their beliefs, the word was the intelligent mind behind everything that is where everything came from and, and, and how you made sense of everything, okay? So it's very much like we would think of God, okay? But so what John here is telling them is this, this word that, you know, this one that you say is behind everything, I want you to know he is the God that we're talking to you about. He is God. 
And not only is, is he God, where he's going with this, that he is Jesus Christ, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, um, what we get here for our theology, we want to think about this, is that the Son of God has always been God. In the beginning, when all that we see and know started, he was already there. The Word, the Son of God, okay? He did not begin to exist at Christmas. He existed before anything else is. He is eternally existent. And, and then this is important, that he's, um, since we see the Word is being identified in verse 14 as Jesus, right? Are you with me on that? Okay, you can see that's what he's saying. Uh, he's saying up here in these verses that the Word was with God and the Word was God. Now, there are some religions that teach that uh, Jesus was not fully God, that he was a God or that he was God-like. Um, and they, they try to use some of the uh, things related to the Greek language here to say this. Um, <clears throat> I'm not going to go into all that today. I'd be glad to show it to you afterwards, okay? It's just it's more detail than we need to go into. But what I do want you to see is this. In this first verse, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The, the Greek language behind here, the, the word for word and the word for God have the same endings. You know how in Spanish, you guys remember taking Spanish? Some of you take Spanish? Some of you just grew up speaking Spanish. But you know what part of speech something is by what? Usually by the word ending, how it ends. Well, it's the same here in the Greek language that the... Uh, the the word for word. The word for word and the word for God have the same ending on them. They are both the subject ending. So you look at a, a, a sentence, you say, what's the subject of the sentence? You check the word ending. And both of those are the same. Okay? And, and uh, even more than that, um, the word God in the Greek does not have an article in front of it. I'm, 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 I'm going in way too deep here, but I like this stuff. Okay. Um, it's missing an article. And when the article is missing in front of a word like God, it means we are trying to communicate uh, not who God is, but what God is. The essence of God. And so what we see here when it says the word was God, it's saying the word was in essence. His very makeup, he was God. In other words, he did not created by God. He, he wasn't a lesser God. He was what? God. And the word was God. And actually, very literally, as we look at this order in the Greek language, and they, they translate it correctly and put the, the subject first, but very literally it says, and God was the word. Okay? And so we can like put an equal sign here. God equals the Word. The Word equals God, okay? Very, very clear that the Son of God has always been God, uh, and uh, He is equal to God because He is God. He is the Son of God. Now, uh, God, Son of God, you know, what's going on? Well, we talk about the Trinity, right? Uh, uh, sometimes I think a better word term might be instead of Trinity, be the triunity, you know, somehow we're trying to capture this. And, but the Trinity tells us, that, and you guys notice, how many gods? One God. 
He exists as three persons, but not three gods. He's one God, three persons. Now, that's a little bit hard to fully grasp. It isn't something we would probably naturally figure out on our own, although there's things that are important about it. Um, but we see it revealed in Scripture. We see it revealed in Scripture, like right up here in this passage that, that we left these words out because we didn't have space for them. But go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Treating them equal, okay? They're equals. They are three equal persons, one God. We see this at the baptism of Jesus. Jesus is being baptized of, of doing what a godly man should have been doing at that point in time. And we, we hear a voice from heaven, the Father, and we see the Spirit descending upon the Son, and God's, the Father says, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And really we see the Trinity, uh, I don't want to say hinted at, it's almost just taken for granted from the very beginning. We're going to see it later in the verses we look at. But when God goes to create man, the scripture says that God said, let us make man in our image. Okay, so we see uh, from the very beginning that that is there. And so uh, this is how the son is preexistent. He is eternally existent uh, because he is God, just as the Father is God and just as the Spirit is God. And by the way, why does this, what's, can you dial in your theological brain here a little bit? Why don't you think about this? If God is not triune, right, and if there's not Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and God is just God, then if he wants to love, he has to do what? Create someone to love. And if he has to create someone to love, then he needs them. You see what I'm saying? That makes God dependent on his creation. See, he doesn't, but here's the reality. God did not need us. God did not need to create us because from all eternity past, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, they have relationship. They have love. They have fellowship. They, so see, I mean, the ramifications of these doctrines really matter. But I, I want to get back to where we're trying to head with this here. So the Son of God has always been God. He didn't begin to exist at Christmas. He was here before time began. And when Jesus is talking to the religious leaders in John chapter 8, and they're challenging him, he finally says this to them. He says, Jesus said, before Abraham was, I am. I am. Now, he wasn't claiming the name of God, this, you know, the name that uh, God was revealed to Moses as, you know, the I am that I am. That he wasn't saying that name, but he's telling them that truth. Before Abraham was, and Abraham lived about... 2,300 years, 2,100 years before Jesus. Before he was, I, he didn't say I was, I what? I am. Wow, how do you do that? Unless you're God, okay? And he was definitely making that claim, and they knew he was making that claim because they picked up stones to stone him, kill him, because he was saying that he was God, okay? So they were unhappy with him about that. And then, in John chapter 17, as he's, he's uh, praying to the Father on our behalf, he says, and now, O Father, glorify me 
together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. Okay? So the Son of God uh, before Christmas was always God. He didn't become the Son of God at Christmas. He didn't come into existence at Christmas. He always existed. Okay? So that brings us up to the second thought here. The Son of God at Christmas. So let's look here in John again. So we, we saw that he is God up in the first couple of verses. We get down to verse 14. And the Word, the Son of God, became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So he became flesh. He took on a human body. And that doctrine we call the incarnation. Uh, the root of that word, carna, it, this flesh, right? Carnal and in. He came into flesh. So the Son of God takes on a human body. And the Bible describes to us how this happened, uh, not the physiological aspects, but go to Matthew chapter 1. <clears throat> Matthew chapter 1. Uh, and we are on page 1112, 1112. Start in verse 12. So uh, Joseph is engaged. We will use that terminology. He was engaged to uh, Mary. He discovers that she's pregnant by you know, what the Holy Spirit has done. And, uh, of course, he doesn't know that. And he's thinking, oh, man, what am I going to do? And he's thinking, well, I'll just put her away. Sorry, I won't make a big deal out of this and let it go. But an angel shows up and talks to him. Verse 22 uh, it says, so all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, through the prophet Isaiah, saying, behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. And so the, uh, in the book of Isaiah, I believe it's chapter 7, I'm not sure, but he has, the prophecy was that a virgin would conceive. Now, we understand, you know, this is seventh grade biology, right? Virgins don't conceive. Okay, so this is a miraculous work of God. But I do want to say something here, that there's, because certain, you know, religious beliefs have taken this idea of Mary being a virgin and turned it into something that just doesn't jive with what the Bible says. You know, they say that Mary is a perpetual virgin. She has been a virgin always, forever. And, and they elevate this idea of this virginity as if it is some, you know, strangely spiritual thing. Uh, but I want to say to you that, how um, do I want to say this, that Mary was not righteous because she was a virgin. Right? So wait a minute. Let's, let's think about this. What are you saying, Walt? Well, here's the thing. Uh, she was a virgin because she had not been married in that culture. Right? She had not had relationship with a man, which was normal. So what I would say is this. Is Mary was not righteous because she was a virgin. But it's probably safe to say she was a virgin because she was righteous. Do you understand the distinction? In other words, because she is righteous, she lived by God's laws and God's rules, God's ways. Okay, so she isn't going to have sexual relationships until she's married. 
But the Bible is also quite clear that Jesus had brothers, and there's no account that they were virgin born, okay? So uh, there is no, I mean, whether a woman is unmarried and a virgin or she's married and she's not, has nothing to do with her righteousness, okay? That that, that aspect of sexuality has no bearing on it. Uh, Righteousness comes from the inside, and then we live our lives. If we're righteous on the inside, then we make righteous choices on the outside. All right, so Mary was a normal human being, just like you and I. She had sinned, she needed a savior. Now, so what is the deal about the virgin birth then? Well, it makes it quite clear that Jesus had no earthly human father, okay? He had no human earthly father, so who was his father? It's not a trick question. God was his father, that's right. And, and that is a unique thing. Um, Jesus is the, the Bible says, the only begotten son. The only, he is a one and only, he is unique. He is unique as the son of God. Uh, I mean, we, when we receive Christ as Savior, we become sons of God, our children of God, right? But not in the same way Jesus was. Okay, before he became a man, we already saw it, he was the son of God from eternity past. Okay, let me twist your head here a little bit. So we said, what, the son of God always existed, right? But Jesus hasn't always existed. Jesus came into being when he was conceived by the Holy Spirit. The man, Jesus. And what we see is that God himself, right? We saw the word became flesh. The son of God somehow or other comes into this human being who receives the name Jesus. And they aren't separate, they're one. Uh, you and I are born with the human spirit, so was Jesus, and, but his spirit was one with the Son of God, somehow, some way. By the way, you want a, a fancy word for that? You learn this in the theology class and then you use it often in the coffee shop. Hypostatic union. Hypostatic union, okay? And what this means is that, that um, This man, uh, Jesus, the Lord Jesus Christ, is both God and man at the same time, one being. All right, let's go to Philippians chapter two and look at uh, some things related to this. Page 1353. Paul here is challenging his readers to be more like Jesus and he uses this whole idea of the incarnation to show it to them. Philippians 2, verse 5, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, and as he was God in essence and who he was, he did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. And what is robbery? Robbery is when you take something that is not yours, right? And well, for Jesus, when he said, if he says, I'm God, he wasn't taking what didn't belong to him, right? He didn't have to rob that, that was already his. He was God equal with God, verse seven, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself, became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. All right, so he comes down. So here's, here's some things. That first of all, he was Jesus for all eternity. Second thing is he took on voluntary limitations. Jesus is real clear, especially as we read through the book of John, and he says, 
here's, here's what I do. I do what the Father tells me to do. I do what he shows me to do. When the Son of God became a man, he didn't stop being God. He continued to be God, but he did give up, I say give up, he yielded his right to use his powers as God because he was going to live like a human being. And so what does he do? He goes through life. Uh, we as human beings, we ought to go through life saying, right? Father, what do you want me to do? And do that. That is what Jesus did. And of course, he did it perfectly. And you and I usually mess it up every day. All right? But he, he uh, so, and, and then if the father, his father's will for him to work a miracle, he did it. Okay? Because he was capable of that. He's God. But he lived his human life the way we are to live it. Surrendered to our Father in heaven, in fellowship with him, walking through life with him, following his leadership, responding to his promptings. Okay, that is the way Jesus lived. And he was human and God, but not sinful, 100% God, 100% man. So this is the Son of God at Christmas. He takes on a human body. He's still God, he's, but he's fully human. And by the way, he is now forever human. And God, but I mean, he's forever human. It isn't like, oh, I'm done with Jesus, this Jesus dude. And no, he became the Lord Jesus Christ. And when we are in heaven someday, we will see Jesus, the Son of God in human form. Okay? These are kind of, these are big thoughts, aren't they? All right, and that brings us to the Son of God, who now is Jesus after Christmas. Okay? So let's look back. To understand this, I want to look back at the first man. Let's go to Genesis chapter 1. That's page number 2 in the Bible there under the chairs. <coughs> Excuse me. Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. This is in creation. Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image, in the image of God he created him. Male and female he created them. So male and female is encompassed within the image of God. Then God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth, okay? Now go over to chapter two. So God gave them dominion, and we know it was Adam who was made. Gave him dominion over all the earth to, to uh, take care of the earth. In chapter two, verse 15. Then the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to tend and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. So we see here that man has been given dominion over creation, but he exercises dominion in submission to God. Okay? What God says is over my dominion. Now, we're not going to read it because we've looked at it so many times, but in Genesis chapter 3, when Adam falls, it sins against God. He, instead of submitting himself to God, submits himself to Satan. Okay? And so now mankind exercises dominion over creation, not in submission to God, but in submission to the enemy, to the evil one. 
That's a big mistake, isn't it? And have we experienced the negative consequences of that? Yes, we have been damaged. We, we are born with a, a, a nature that is in rebellion to God. We are born with the, all the physical stuff that goes on. We are born facing death. All of this because uh, Adam surrendered himself to the enemy, the evil one. Okay? Now, um, so Adam, who was the first one, put in charge, blows it. Big time. Now, I think, you know, we have to be careful in my senses. I would have blown it too. All right? But nonetheless, that is what happens. So what is our solution? That's, that's where we are. That's where the world is. Well, it's interesting that in the Christmas carols, oftentimes there's some, a lot of theology in the Christmas carols. We sang Hark the Herald Angels uh, Sing this morning. Uh, but there's a verse, you know, there's multiple verses, and there's a verse a little farther down the way that we virtually never sing. And, and part of that verse says this. It says, Adam's like, go ahead, if you would. Adam's likeness, Lord, if face, stamp thine image in its place. Second Adam from above, reinstate us in thy love, you know, by Charles Wesley. But Adam's likeness, that which we inherited from him, he says, efface, and efface means to erase, remove. And in its place, we have a second Adam whose likeness we need, we want. And so Jesus is referred to in the Bible as the second Adam. The first one messed up. But the second one, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, it says the first man, Adam, and then the last Adam, this is referring to Jesus, and the first man was of the earth, made of dust. We see that account in Genesis. The second man is the Lord from heaven. So what has happened is that Adam here, we, we know the failure. We don't even need to talk about it. We experience it. So he got it wrong. Well, Jesus is the second Adam who's coming to get it right and change everything because of it. So let's take our Bibles and turn to Romans 5. Romans 5, it's gonna be on page 1298. We see the contrast of what Adam did and what, it, what happened because of it, and then we see what Jesus did and what has happened and is happening and has the potential to happen. So Romans chapter 5, starting in verse 12. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world, and death through sin. Who's that? What man? Adam, that's right. Okay, and death through sin. And thus death spread to all men because all sinned. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who had not sinned according to the likeness of the transgression of Adam, who was a type of him who was to come. And there were some things about him that we, learn, we can learn about Jesus from. And so he starts talking about this. Verse 15. But the free gift, referring to salvation, but the free gift is not like the offense, and the offense refers to Adam's sin. For if by the one man's offense many died, much more by the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abounded to many. So the offense brought death. Jesus Christ is bringing this gift, the gift of eternal life. Verse 16, and the gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. 
For the judgment which came from one offense resulted in condemnation. That's in Adam. But the free gift which came from many offenses resulted in justification. That's through Jesus, the second Adam. Verse 17, for if by the one man's offense death reigned through the one, through Adam, much more those who receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one Jesus Christ, the second Adam. Therefore, as, the, as through one man's offense judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation, even so through one man's righteous act the free gift came to all men, resulting in justification of life. For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so also by one man's obedience many will be made righteous. Okay? So do you see how this works? Adam, everything that we have because we are descendants of Adam. But Jesus came to, to get, do it right, to get it right. Okay, hang, hang, hang on there for a minute. Hebrews chapter 2. So Adam failed, Jesus succeeded. Adam, in a sense, represented us all, didn't he? He was our first representative. Um, Jesus is the second one. Hebrews chapter 2, page 1374. <clears throat> it says, verse 14. Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, it's talking about us, human beings, he himself, he's talking about the Son of God, he himself likewise shared in the same, that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil. So we are flesh and blood, Jesus takes on flesh and blood that he might die, die the holy righteous man, not deserving it, and in so doing, destroy the power of Satan and death. Okay, then go to verse 17. <clears throat> Why would he do this for us? Verse 17, therefore in all things, he had to be made like his brethren. <coughs> Excuse me. That he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For him to come and to make, for him to provide a satisfactory payment for sin. That's what the word propitiation means. Okay? A satisfactory payment for sin. He had to become human. And he did. Why would he do that? Because he loves us, right? There is no other reason. Why would he do that? It's because of his great love for us. He had to become like us to deliver us. And he did it all for us because he loves us. Now, so here we are. Adam, first Adam, second Adam, first man, second man. Adam, Jesus, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God. We start off, every one of us, in Adam. Okay, we are in, we're in Adam's line, right? You want to trace your ancestry back? Guess where it goes to? Adam. And as a result, we have everything that goes along with that. Well, the Bible says that when we receive Christ as Savior, in other words, when we, when we understand that we've sinned against the holy God and um, that our sins separate us from him, and if we die like that, we go to hell, and we come to believe that Jesus died paying the penalty for our sins, rising in from the dead, and, and we make a conscious, heartfelt decision to receive Christ as Savior, to receive his payment, 
in full for our sins. The moment we do that, the Bible says that we are now in Christ. <clears throat> okay? We were in Adam. That is our heritage, right? Can you escape that on your own? No, it's where you are and always will be if, if God doesn't do something. Well, God does something. God takes you and saves you and he puts you into Christ. And he has broken that. You understand what I'm saying? I mean, it's no longer. Your heritage no longer goes back to Adam. <laughs> Historically, does it go back to Adam? Yes, you did. But he has set you free from the inescapable things of Adam. Because he came and got it right. And when we get saved, we are put into Christ. And in fact, it tells us that he made us a new creation. <clears throat> because I, I guarantee you that if you think about how am I going to make progress? How am I going to be able to overcome this? How am I going to be able to do what I need to do? When I look up to my ancestor Adam and inherit all this, what hope do I have? I'm going to be like Adam. That's what I'm going to be. Oh, but when I get put into Christ, now I can look back and say, yeah, I used to be there, but now I'm there. And I look at the heritage I have now, it goes back to who? To Jesus. Holy, pure, righteous, loving. I can do something different now, can't I? Because I'm in Christ. I'm a new creation in Christ. And so, <clears throat> this is all theology that we're talking about here, and it really matters. It's this Christmasology that we're talking about. And um, it, it, it makes a huge difference in our lives when we understand it. So let's just make some quick applications here. Who is it that we worship at Christmas? I mean God, right, but Jesus, the Son of God. But I want you to understand that this Son of God is the one who was here He's, he's existed for all eternity. The Son of God, as you look at the creation around you and then the, as you want to start looking at what they see out in space and the power, everything, He created all of that. That is who we're worshiping. <clears throat> There's a little baby in the manger. But really, we aren't worshiping a little baby. We're worshiping the God of the universe, aren't we? In the Son of God. Now, his incarnation, becoming the second Adam, the one who got it right, becoming one of us in order to redeem us, is an amazing thing, and, and it's something that takes time to ponder and consider. But this idea that I'm no longer an Adam, I am now in Christ with respect to my heritage and my potential, is intended to be life-changing. So what problem are you facing today? What is there in your life where you know I keep coming up short? I mean, it's relationships. Maybe it's your integrity. Maybe it's whatever. Where, well, I want you to know that there is hope. Because God has broken the chain and he puts you into Christ, right? So there is hope. Your life can change because of these things. And so I think it comes down to this, that when I consider who this is, we're talking about at Christmas time, <clears throat> that there's only one logical conclusion of what I need to do and what you need to do. And that's that we need to surrender anew. Oh God, I see what you did. I understand, you know, who you are, what you did. I, I surrender to you anew today. Maybe surrender for the first time and receive Christ as Savior. That'd be awesome. 
but I surrender to you. You know, this is what Paul says. He says, I beg you, brothers, by the mercies of God that you present yourselves a living sacrifice to God. In other words, you surrender yourself completely to him. Then he says this, which is your reasonable service. So I want to really encourage you, to try to encourage you here today. God has done something amazing, bigger than we think, and we go through Christmas and lots of cool stuff, fun stuff, and this can get lost in the shuffle. Don't let it. Remember who this is that we're talking about, the eternally existent Son of God who loved us so much that he entered our world and he broke the chains that we were bound up with in Adam. Make sense? Let's go live it, huh? Father, we come to you today and I thank you for these truths in your word. Thank you for helping us understand them. I pray today for anybody who's here who hasn't made that first surrender to receive your son as Savior. I pray that they would do that, Father, right now in their hearts. Or if they have questions, I pray they'd ask, Lord. And for all of us who've already received your son as Savior, I pray that we would surrender ourselves anew. <clears throat> Trust that you know what's going on and you can work in our lives. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's, let's keep everything rolling, okay, for just a minute. I um, meant to, to share with you that I live this out like you do. Right now, I'm living in a, a situation again with where my father, we thought we had a place for him, and now it's looking like he's not going to be able to stay there because of his problems. I don't have a clue where he goes. I don't have, you know, there's no, not enough money to go probably where he needs to go, and, and all these things. And um, by nature, I will fret over these things. I mean, by my old nature, old ways. But I'm reminded, and this is a good time for me, I'm reminded of who it is that I'm trusting. The one who created the universe and makes it run the way it does, I think he can figure out what needs to happen with my dad. Second thing about that is that his solution may not be easy. But because of who he is and what he said and what he's capable of doing, I know that even if it is terribly difficult, God will use it for good in my life and will help me to be more like Jesus because of it. This is real stuff, folks, okay? All right, God bless you. You, are, you uh, may go in fellowship and we'll start our Bible study at 1130.